May 9th, 1725. A band of 34 New England Rangers moves through the woods along the Saco River in western Maine. Part-time farmers, part-time woodsmen, they are on a mission to attack a base of operations for their Abenaki enemies, the town of Pigwacket. They are also on a mission to take scalps, which they plan to cash in for a handsome bounty offered by the colony of Massachusetts. The company spies a lone Abenaki armed with a fowling piece ahead of them on the shores of Saco Pond. Is he a scout for a larger force? A decoy sent to lead them into an ambush? Or is he merely a hunter out to bag some waterfowl for the pot? These descendants of Puritans have just concluded their morning prayers. Now they convene a council of war. They decide to go after the lone warrior whose easy scalp represents a hundred British pounds for their purse. Captain John Lovell, recently become a legend on the New York frontier, orders the men to leave their packs behind and leads the rangers on a stalk of their quarry. As the rangers approach, the Abenaki spots them, raises his fowling piece, and fires. A load of shot takes Captain Lovell in the belly and also wounds Samuel Whiting. Ensign Seth Wyman fires and kills the Indian. Young chaplain Jonathan Fry leaps forward to raise the warrior's scalp. He needs his share of the bounty money to afford to marry his 13-year-old sweetheart back in Dunstable, Massachusetts. The badly wounded Lovell and his men head back around the lake to retrieve their packs and walk straight into an ambush. Two separate parties of Abenaki, one a raiding party led by the renowned war captain Paugus, discovered the packs, discerned the size of the force, and laid a trap. When the file of rangers approaches, the warriors open fire at close range. The withering fusillade kills Lovell and eight other rangers and wounds several more. Ensign Wyman instantly steps up to take command. The rangers fire back at their assailants, break contact, and pull back to the edge of the pond, where there is at least some scant cover. What follows is a ten-hour ordeal, a firefight that the 19th century historian Francis Parkman described as one of the most obstinate and deadly bushfights in the annals of New England. By 1725, New England had been at war with the indigenous peoples of the region on and off for 50 years. It had started in 1676 with a devastating rising that would become known to history as King Philip's War, which we covered at length in a multi-part Frontier Partisans podcast series. I'll link to that in the show notes. A northern front of that war had opened in Maine, New Hampshire, and northern Massachusetts when authorities had foolishly attempted to preemptively disarm the members of the Wabanaki Confederacy, touching off hostilities that would match Medicom's uprising in brutality, but would last much longer. The region would be a theater of war in two international conflicts between France and England, known in the North American colonies as King William's War from 1688 to 1697, and Queen Anne's War from 1702 to 1713. The French in Canada armed, supplied, and fomented joint Canadian and Indian raids 
into New England, hitting exposed settlements such as the sprawling township of Dunstable on the Merrimack River on the Massachusetts-New Hampshire border. Dunstable, now Nashua, New Hampshire, was Captain Lovell's hometown. Maine historian Pat Higgins writes, Troubles with the natives began almost immediately after the first settlers arrived in 1668. The town was all but abandoned during King Philip's War. 1691, the year in which John Lovell was born in Dunstable, was particularly bloody, as was 1703 and 1706. So vicious and frequent were attacks on the settlers that the town sent out snowshoe men to roam the woods in search of Indian war parties. Between 1701 and 1711, the population declined from 180 to just 86. Thirteen families, including the Lovells, crammed into seven widespread garrison houses. Dunstable was a frontier town and remained a target for Indian attacks over a 50-year period. Jeremiah Belknap, New Hampshire's earliest historian, wrote of this period that every man of 40 years old had seen 20 years of war. Historian Robert Cray elaborates, King William's war directly affected Dunstable. Friendly Indians had warned of an attack, sending settlers scurrying to the nearest fortified house. Companies of scouts continued to watch the borders. Yet despite warnings and precautions, settlers in scattered homesteads were caught unaware. The Hassels, Joseph, his wife Anne, their son Benjamin, and a visiting female acquaintance were among the first town fatalities on September 2, 1691. That the Hassels ranked among the leading families added to the tragedy. Death was no respecter of class in wartime. A note penned in the Book of Town Records, most likely by the Reverend Weld, tersely announced that the family had been slain by our Indian enemies. Several weeks later, Obadiah Perry and Christopher Temple met the same fate. Attackers could move at will and escape capture. Such assaults dramatically drove home life's fragility on the wartime borderlands. After the Treaty of Utrecht ended Queen Anne's War, in 1713, New England settlers began pushing deeper into the territory of the Wabanaki Confederacy. The tribes resisted, the Abenaki particularly vigorously. The French resented the New England encroachment as much as their allies did, but any aid they provided to the resistance had to be covert now that France and England were officially at peace. Father Sebastian Rall founded a mission at Norwich Town on the Kennebec River in Maine. The Jesuit acted as both missionary to Abenaki converts and as an agent of France, encouraging Abenaki resistance to New England's expansion. In 1722, tensions broke into armed conflict in what would become known variously as Father Rowell's War or Dummer's War after the Massachusetts Lieutenant Governor William Dummer, who pursued it with zeal and an open purse for scout bounties. Raiders, again, hit the New England settlements, including Dunstable. Father Rowell described Abenaki raiding tactics that were highly successful and very difficult to counter. 
Large war parties broke into smaller groups, sometimes just a handful of warriors, each taking a different target, a homestead, hamlet, town, as they described it, to eat. Our 250 warriors spread themselves over more than 20 leagues of country, and on the appointed day they made simultaneous attacks very early in the morning. In one single day they ruined all the English. They killed more than 200 and took 150 prisoners, while on their side only a few warriors were wounded, and these but slightly. They returned from this expedition to the village, each of them having two canoes laden with booty that he had taken. On September 5, 1724, two Dunstable men, who were out in the woods making turpentine, were captured by Abenaki raiders. A party of townsmen sallied forth to try to rescue them. In a classic scenario that would play out on frontiers across North America, one of the pursuers goaded his more cautious comrades, I am going to take the direct path. If any of you are not afraid, follow me. Of course, the direct path led into an ambush. All but one of the rescue party, Josiah Farwell, were killed. Farwell would become a lieutenant under Captain Lovell, as that gentleman formed a force to range the woods to intercept Indian raiding parties. Higgins writes, Jonathan Lovell, together with Josiah Farwell and Jonathan Robbins, soon submitted a petition to the general court in Boston to range and to keep out in the woods for several months together in order to kill and destroy their enemy Indians, provided they can meet the encouragement suitable. On November 17, 1724, the general court voted and approved the petition for not more than 50 men at a per diem of two shillings and six pence for each day in the field or in fitting out the expeditions. A hundred-pound bounty was to be paid for each male Indian scalp. John Lovell was a robust 33-year-old man from a relatively successful frontier family that had settled in Dunstable in the 1680s. He was married and had at least two children and owned a 200-acre farm. Like many men who grew up on the frontier, though, he seemed to prefer a life of hunting and ranging in the woods. Historians and storytellers have ascribed many different motives to Lovell's enthusiastic embrace of the ranger way. Some praise a sense of duty and a desire to serve, while some perceive a base greed for scalp bounties and a desire for martial glory. And of course, those elements and characteristics are not mutually exclusive. An early chronicler described him as burning with zeal to perform some valiant exploit against the enemies. Simply put, he was a natural-born frontier partisan. Like Benjamin Church before him, he was spirited for that work. Captain Lovell led a company of approximately 50 men into the White Mountains of New Hampshire in December of 1724. The expedition happened upon a wigwam, where they killed and scalped an Abenaki man and took a boy captive. The patrol left the Abenaki's body as a message to other Indians and marched back to Dunstable. It's a mark of how elusive the Indian enemies were that this insignificant episode was regarded as a major accomplishment. The Massachusetts governor tossed in another 50 pounds 
into the pot as a bonus over and above the designated 100 pounds and 50 pounds paid for the captive boy whose fate went, as far as I can tell, unrecorded, almost certainly entailed enslavement. Captain Lovell was likely dissatisfied with the meager results of this first expedition. It certainly didn't qualify as a valiant exploit. He immediately began recruiting for another go. This time, 87 men headed out of Dunstable in late January. Now, trekking through the New England wilderness in January, in the midst of the Little Ice Age, was rough going, but the dead of winter was the best time to recruit men because it was a downtime for farmers and tradesmen alike. Indians sometimes launched raids in the deep winter, like the legendary Deerfield Raid in February of 1704. So the rangers might intercept raiders or they might catch the Abenaki in winter camps and, and either was a suitable outcome. The company of rangers patrolled hard for a month with Lovell breaking his men in gradually to the rigors of the trail. Weeks into the grueling trek, running low on supplies, Lovell sent 30 men home. On February 16, 1725, the men bagged a moose, which solved their supply problems. Then on February 20th, scouts found sign of an Abenaki camp. After a stealthy approach, Captain Lovell deployed his men for a night assault. He ordered his men to await his signal and then open up in volleys of five into the wigwams. Through staggered fire, Lovell ensured that a portion of the command would always have a loaded piece, which was a vital tactical element in the era of single-shot muzzleloaders. Some of Lovell's men might have been armed with military muskets, but the primary weapon was likely the New England fowling piece. These were long, with a heavy club-shaped butt. They were smooth bores and could be loaded either with a single heavy round ball or a load of bird shot or a combination. Lovell's rangers would have loaded with a combination of ball and swan shot, which is really heavy bird shot, a load that was quite devastating at close range. At 2 a.m. on February 21st, Lovell leveled his fouling piece and fired, killing two Indians with a single shot. The first volley of five killed five more, and the reserve volley killed two and wounded a third. The wounded man tried to escape into the forest, but a dog ran him down, and he was killed on the ground. Lovell's company claimed ten scalps. The attack had yielded a rich haul of plunder. The scalps were worth a thousand pounds, a lot of money, in a cash-strapped North American colony. The rangers also recovered 10 new French muskets, which they would sell for seven pounds apiece. The Abenaki camp also held a stash of extra blankets and snowshoes, which was a strong indication that the rangers had intercepted and destroyed a raiding party out for captives to hold for ransom or for adoption. Captain Lovell had achieved his valiant and profitable deed. When his company marched into Boston to claim their reward, they were greeted with accolades and paraded through the streets with their scalps. One report has it that Lovell donned a wig of scalps for the festivities. 
Such a barbaric display calls up images from Cormac McCarthy's novel about scalp hunters in northern Mexico in the 19th century, Blood Meridian. And it might seem hard to square with New England Puritans. But you have to remember that Puritans had cut off Metacom's head and displayed it for years on a stake in Plymouth. His body was dismembered and the parts sent around the colony. So a wig of scalps and an exultant parade was actually squarely in the lurid tradition of the frontier. The expedition made Captain Lovell famous as an Indian hunter. Always spirited for that work, he soon planned yet another expedition, this one aimed at an Abenaki base of operations on the Saco River at Pigwacket Town. The decision to target Pigwacket Town was probably influenced by a powerful blow struck by New England Rangers against Norridgewalk on the Kennebec River. That expedition was commanded by Captain Jeremiah Moulton and Captain Johnson Harmon, and both of those men came from what you might call ranging families. It was the third expedition going after uh, the high-value target that was Father Sebastian Rall, the Jesuit agent that New Englanders blamed for motivating and supporting Abenaki raids on their settlements. Three expeditions were mounted to capture Rall in his mission village at Norwich Walk. Twice he escaped. The third assault in August 1724 got him. Moulton and Harmon led 200 rangers to the Abenaki village on the Kennebec River, hit it at night, and killed somewhere between 30 and 80 inhabitants. Accounts vary. They also killed Father Rall, who was allegedly shot while reloading a musket. So he was a fighting priest. The rangers took out their pent-up fury on his corpse, shooting him repeatedly, scalping him, smashing his skull with a tomahawk, poking out his eyes and stuffing the empty sockets in the priest's mouth with mud. The uh, receipts were taken to Boston to be presented for a massive bounty payment. Now, driven as he was to strike a valiant blow... Captain Lovell had to have seen Captain Moulton and Captain Harmon's exploit as something he could emulate. And the bounty on dozens of scalps, that had to be enticing. A hard strike on Pigwacket held the promise of fortune and glory. Strategically, it would disrupt or maybe destroy a jumping-off point for Abenaki attacks on Dunstable and other New England towns. Despite his new-won fame, though, Captain Lovell struggled to recruit for this third ranging expedition. That last expedition, the second one, though successful, had been pretty harrowing, and a few men had Lovell's zeal to go through that again. And it was, after all, moving into the spring planting season, and his part-time rangers had other obligations. So only 46 men left Dunstable on April 16, 1725. One of those, suffering from an old wound, pulled up lame and had to return home with another ranger as escort. That left 44 men to plunge into the wilderness. When the rangers reached Osipi Lake, they built a small fort of horizontal logs to serve as a supply dump and left 10 men to guard it. 
as the 34 remaining rangers moved out, traveling light, to make the last 30 miles or so to Pigwacket. On May 8th or May 9th, accounts differ, the force encountered that lone Indian on the shores of Saco Pond and killed him. Returning to their stashed packs, they ran into that withering fire from an Abenaki ambush. Nine men fell dead, including Captain Lovell, and a desperate fight was on. At that first fire, Benjamin Hassel ran off into the woods. His desertion would have devastating consequences, and not just to his reputation. He ran off to Osipi Lake, where he told the rear guard that Lovell's command had been wiped out. The ten men pulled up stakes and skedaddled immediately, making nearly 40 miles a day fleeing back to Dunstable. There would be no rear guard force to provide succor to the survivors of Lovell's fight. Back at Saco Pond, the Abenaki and the New England Rangers traded shots for hours. Ensign Seth Wyman had stepped up to take command immediately upon the death of Captain Lovell, and he did an outstanding job of keeping his men together, breaking contact, and establishing a defensive position in the pine flats up against the pond. A concerted rush would have overrun the position, but that kind of assault was not the Abenaki way or the way of any woodland Indian warrior culture. They were very casualty-averse. They didn't have large populations and couldn't afford to take losses. So the fighters blazed away at relatively long range. It wasn't a constant barrage, but it was a brisk firefight given the technology of the era. Several survivors reported firing 20 to 30 musket balls, which was a pretty high rate of fire in an era of single-shot muzzleloaders. And that kind of rate of fire left barrels caked with thick black powder residue, which made it increasingly hard to ram a charge down the barrel. Folklore has it that a ranger named John Chamberlain of Groton, Massachusetts, crept down to the water's edge to rinse out the barrel of his fowling piece and ran into the Abenaki war captain, Pogus, on the same mission. Each man frantically set about loading their piece. Chamberlain's piece had an enlarged touch hole, which enabled him to prime his piece by thumping the stock on the ground while Pogus was priming out of his powder horn. That gave Chamberlain a second or two of advantage. He raised his fouling piece and shot true, while Pogus's shot a second later went wild, and the war captain fell dead. Now this story cropped up long after the events, and some historians discount it. Chamberlain's descendants naturally cherish the story and insist on its veracity, noting that Chamberlain was known as Pogus John during his lifetime. He was also alleged to have killed a son of Pogus who turned up in Groton years later on a mission to assassinate him. Another candidate as Pogus's slayer is Seth Wyman. Wyman crept up upon a group of Abenaki in conference and shot their leader and then hot-footed it back to his men. Some say that the man that he killed was Pogus. Chamberlain's partisans say that it was the leader that was selected after Pogus had been slain. As is so often the case with frontier partisan history, we can't definitively untangle 
fact, from folklore. What is indisputable is that Pagus was killed at Sako Pond. That was a significant blow to the Abenaki, and as night fell, they abandoned the fight. The plight of the command, of the ranger command, was terrible. One wounded man had crawled into an abandoned canoe he found on the pond, intending to die where the Indians couldn't get at him. He floated away, and miraculously he made it home, alive. Lieutenant Robbins knew he was too badly wounded to make it out, so he asked for a loaded musket so that when the Abenaki returned to claim his scalp, he could kill one more of them. The command left Sako Pond, which would ever after be known as Lovell's Pond, and tried to get back to the Osipi Fort. They broke up into smaller and smaller groups, and they made it back piecemeal only to find that they'd been abandoned. Young Chaplain Fry disappeared in the forest and his body was never recovered. Lieutenant Farwell, too. After a terrible ordeal of body and spirit, the survivors eventually straggled into the New England settlements. Lovell's fight, as it immediately became known, was clearly a disaster for the New England Rangers. Or was it? True, the command had been horribly mauled, 13 dead, others gravely wounded. Even the unwounded men suffered tremendously from privation on the retreat to the settlements. But from a strategic standpoint, you could make the case that it had at least a little redeeming success. The Abenaki abandoned Pigwocket and pulled back into Canada. They were scattered in a less cohesive military power than they had been. Ironically, some would relocate to the mission at St. Francis, which would be targeted in a similar raid by Rogers Rangers in 1759. Dummer's War ended in December 1725 with a treaty that forced the Abenaki to acknowledge the land claims of New England settlers and promise not to attack them. Trade was reestablished, and for a time, there would be peace on the New England frontier. I'd like to thank the Frontier Partisans patrons. We've got a couple of new scouts Jeremy Popple and Malcolm Brooks. I'd also like to thank Josh Buchanan, John Sweet, Hawk and Horse, Bridger Larson, Matthew Campbell, Larry Richardson, Bob Buckholtz, Ash, Harry Kaiser, Mike McIver, Wade McKnight, Chaz Clifton, Bob Dice, Alan Godseff, Jerry Nunnally, El Randolito, Christopher West, Matthew Free Live Free, Paul McNamee, David Rolson, and Rick Schwertfager. As always, the support is greatly appreciated. It's what uh, keeps the electronic campfire burning here at Frontier Partisans and allows me to assemble the research material for this podcast and for uh, the Ranger Project. This uh, podcast series, Tales of the Rangers, is going to be an ongoing series um, for some time, for the foreseeable future. What I'm going to do 
is I'm going to take uh, elements that uh, crop up in the research for Spirited for that work, um, aka the Ranger Project, um, incidents and personalities that will probably be part of the larger picture and the, the book that will eventually come out of this, but who deserve um, a telling of their own. Um, for example, uh, Lovell's fight will probably get some mention in, in the book, but not uh, the detailed treatment that it deserves and that I really have wanted to give it for, for some time. So stories like that are going to, uh, to appear on the podcast under the, the heading of Tales of the Rangers. The next one that I plan to do uh, tells the story of the captivity of John Stark. Some of you may recognize that name. Uh, he was a general in the Revolutionary War and won the Battle of Bennington, which was a, a key victory in a skirmish during the Saratoga Campaign. He also... Uh, coined the New Hampshire state motto, live free or die. But before John Stark became General John Stark, he served with his boyhood friend Robert Rogers in Rogers Rangers. And that's where he got his military experience and his grit and his capability. And uh, prior to his service with the Rangers, he grew up as a uh, woods-running teenager in uh, the New England backcountry. And in 1752, during a period of peace, he and a couple of his companions were trapping in the forest and, and streams of New Hampshire and were captured by Abenaki. One of Stark's companions was killed. He was captured and, and adopted into the tribe. And uh, it's an interesting captivity narrative and uh, very reflective of Stark's rough and tumble personality. And uh, certainly can be seen both as emblematic of the period and also a uh, shaping experience for a man who contributed significantly to the victory that made American independence possible. So, interesting side trail, a fine addition to the Tales of the Rangers. Uh, looking forward to diving into that, and we'll see you down the trail.